0: I can still vividly remember a particular summer evening I spent visiting my friend Andy. He lived on top of a mountain. Now, mind you, it was a Pennsylvanian mountain, so think more like really big hill you'd rather drive up than bike. But I was a teenager at the time, and it seemed really big and really far away. Anyhow, Andy and I were outside enjoying the fantastic view of the starry night sky, and somehow... I remember the topic turned to religion. And I was an atheist at that point in my life, but I'd grown up attending church, so I knew something about Jesus. What I remember most clearly at that point is that I turned to Andy and I said, Andy, if the Bible were true, if, if Jesus was who he said he was, and if he really died for the sins of mankind, and if he really rose again, from the dead, then that would be the greatest news that the world has ever known, and I would do everything in my power, Power, I'd shout it from the rooftops to make sure that people could hear this message, but he's not, and he didn't, so I won't, and then we move on to talking about video games or something. Today is Easter Sunday, and I am not that kid on the mountain anymore, and I have different beliefs about Jesus now, and so this morning, as I'd promised all those years ago, I'm going to shout the good news of Jesus Christ from the rooftops. The worship team has already been doing that for us today, and even the children came up here and just did that for us. But the worship team didn't do that because we like to sing, and the kids didn't do that because they're really cute, although both those things are true. We did those things because of what happened on that first Easter morning. Two thousand years ago, Jesus died, and then He rose again from the dead. And so our response is to worship. And this morning we're going to discuss why that is, and we're going to look at Matthew 27 and 28, to do that. So if you have a church Bible, please turn there with me. Uh, it's page 486, or use your own Bible. It'll also be up on the screen here in just a moment. Matthew 27, verse 57 is where we're going to start. But first, some context, Matthew has written up an account of Jesus's life and ministry for us. What we'll see there is that Jesus has completely fulfilled all the Jewish prophecies of the Messiah, that is the Christ, and that this Christ would, in the end, give his life to forgive the sins of all who put their trust in him. And on the day that we call Good Friday, that's exactly what Jesus did. He was unjustly arrested, condemned, tortured, and hung on a Roman cross where he died. And that's where our text picks up. Please look with me at Matthew twenty-seven fifty-seven, and I'm going to read to the end of the chapter. That is, after the day of preparation, the chief priests and the Pharisees gathered before Pilate and said, Sir, we remember how that imposter said, while he was still alive, After three days I will rise. Therefore, order the tomb to be made secure until the third day, lest his disciples go and steal him away and tell the people, He has risen from the dead, and the last fraud will be worse than the first. Pilate said to them, You have a guard of soldiers. Go make it as secure as you can. So they went and made the tomb secure by sealing the stone and setting a guard. The first point on your outline this morning is that Jesus was dead. Let's look at uh, verse 58 there. Joseph, of Arimathea, a a disciple of Jesus, boldly went to Pilate, the Roman governor who had Jesus killed, and asked for the body of Jesus. Why? Because Joseph knew that Jesus was dead, and he wanted to give him a proper Jewish burial. Pilate, in turn, released Jesus' body to him. Why did he do that? Because he also knew that Jesus was dead. See, Romans were really, really good at killing people. It was something of a specialty of theirs. They did it a lot, and a favorite means of doing so was Via crucifixion, which was the most horrific way to kill someone that they knew of, and they employed it liberally. Between the torture and the blood loss and the asphyxiation, and when necessary, broken bones and a spear in the side and whatever else, they had a pretty flawless track record of knowing whether someone was dead. And so, because of all that knowledge, Pilate yielded the dead body of Jesus to Joseph. Then in verse 59, Joseph prepared the body for burial. Why? Because he knew that Jesus was dead. And that's what one does with the dead bodies of loved ones. Then in verse 60, Joseph lays the body of Jesus in Joseph's own new tomb. Why? Because he knew that Jesus was dead. And that's what you do with dead bodies prepared for burial. Now, follow follow along with me here. He then rolled a huge stone in front of this tomb so that at that point, no one else could get in or out. Now, he wasn't expecting that anyone would, of course, come out. Why? Because he knew that Jesus was dead. Meanwhile, we see in verse 61 that Mary Magdalene and the other Mary Sat and watched Joseph do this, rolling that huge stone in front. Now, why didn't they try to stop him? Why didn't they say, No, 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 don't walk away, Jesus? Because they too knew that Jesus was dead. And in verse 62, we come to Saturday, the Jewish Sabbath. The chief priests and the Pharisees, who were no fans of Jesus, mind you, come to Pilate with a request. They say, that Jesus had said while he was still alive that he'd come back to life after he died. So pause there for a second. Why did they add the clause when talking to Pilate while he was still alive? It's because they knew that Jesus was dead. So the Jews here were concerned that Jesus' disciples might come along and steal Jesus' body and then propagate the lie that Jesus has risen from the dead and follow the logic with me in order for people to believe the lie that Jesus had risen from the dead. What do they first have to believe that Jesus was dead, which they did because countless people saw it happen. The chief priests and the Pharisees knew he was dead and Pilate knew he was dead. And all the people who had watched knew he was dead And so a professional Roman guard is placed around the tomb. And as a bonus, they sealed the stone so that no one could move it without everyone plainly knowing. And three times in this short text in verses 64, 65, and 66, we're told that the tomb is to be very secure. So every single person mentioned here knew full well that Jesus was dead. Joseph knew, Pilate knew, Mary and the other Mary knew, the chief priests knew, and the Pharisees knew, and all the people who might possibly believe that he rose from the dead knew, and the guards knew. There was absolutely no question from anyone, regardless of how much they did or did not like Jesus, that Jesus was dead. So what's the main point here? What should we take away from this section of the text? Jesus was dead. Okay. Why did Matthew go to such great lengths and why did I just spend so much of my valuable sermon time up here this morning trying to make this one point? It's because what happens next only matters at all if we know with absolute certainty that Jesus was dead ready let's read matthew 28 verses 1 through 10 now after the sabbath toward the dawn of the first day of the week mary magdalene and the other mary went to see the tomb and behold there was a great earthquake for an angel of the lord descended from heaven and came and rolled back the stone and sat on it his appearance was like lightning and his clothing white as snow And for fear of him, the guards trembled and became like dead men. But the angel said to the women, do not be afraid, for I know that you seek Jesus who is crucified. He is not here, for he has risen, as he said. Come see the place where he lay. Then go quickly and tell his disciples that he has risen from the dead. And behold, he is going before you to Galilee. There you will see him. See, I have told you. So they departed quickly from the tomb with fear and great joy and ran to tell his disciples. And behold, Jesus met them and said, Greetings! And they came up and took hold of his feet and worshiped him. Then Jesus said to them, Do not be afraid. Go and tell my brothers to go to Galilee, and there they will see me. Point two on your outline. Jesus is risen. My friends, Jesus was dead and now He is risen. And we're going to talk about the implications of that in a moment. But first, Matthew offers us multiple invitations to explore this incredible claim for ourselves right here in this text. Let's look at a few of these. First, did you notice how many times Matthew invites us to see? Verse 1, Mary and Mary went to see the tomb. Verse 2 starts with and behold which means look see check this out. Verse 3 the angel's appearance what they saw was like lightning and his clothing white as snow. Verse 6 the angel invites the women to come see where Jesus' body had been. Verse 7 the angel tells the women the women to go to Galilee and see Jesus for themselves. And later in verse 7 he says See, I have told you. And I especially love that one because grammatically we well, should expect him to say, Listen, I have told you. But he says, See, because he doesn't want us to miss this. Open your eyes. Examine this for yourselves. This is no myth or legend that can only be heard and not seen. You don't need to take my word for it. Go, look, see for yourselves. Examine it and make your own conclusions. Verse 9. Again, behold, You hold what? Wait for it. Ready? Ready? Look, it's Jesus. (laughs) He's not dead anymore. He had been locked away after being brutally murdered, and here he is. What does that mean? What do we do with that? Well, pause on that thought for just a moment. We're going to come back to it. Because finally, in verse 10, Jesus himself repeats the same message we've been hearing. Go and tell my brothers to go to Galilee. And there they will see me. These are invitations, friends. Invitations to investigate all this for yourselves. But that's only the beginning. Matthew invites us repeatedly to see, but he also gives us a ton more evidence to consider. This text is like a giant neon sign in the sky that, that reads, check this out. This Is not normal. Okay, here's what I mean. Look at this text. In verse one, the two Marys head to the tomb on Sunday morning, and that is the last normal thing that happens. First, there's a great earthquake. Now, that alone would be noteworthy in its timing and its magnitude, but then Matthew highlights the cause of this earthquake. An angel of the Lord came down from heaven, rolled back the giant stone, and then popped a squat on top. That's not normal, people. Have you ever seen that? I haven't. And this wasn't done in secret. This was done in the plain view of others. At dawn, the sun was up, and it was seen so clearly that the angel's clothing could be described. He wasn't far off in the distance. They're like, is that an angel? No, it's a guy wearing a white shirt. Like, they could see him. And remember those professional Roman guards? (laughs) Yeah, they saw it too. And seeing it seriously messed them up. Those professional guards were so absolutely terrified that Matthew says they became like dead men. And seriously, the irony of dead men guarding a tomb that no longer contains a dead man must not be overlooked here well played matthew well played but just think about these things what other explanation can be given for it could could two women overpower a trained roman squad roll back the huge stone themselves get the body of jesus convince the roman guards to say an angel did it and then later convince the disciples that the cold dead mutilated body was the prophesied messiah and the risen savior of Israel. <laughs> Can you imagine a modern day newspaper reporter making claims like that? If 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 a, a newspaper reporter wrote something like that, they should go on to writing their resume immediately thereafter because they're going to need it as soon as that goes to print. And to make this even more incredulous, women in that culture, were so undervalued that their testimony was not even admissible in court. So the fact that Matthew tells us that both an angel and Jesus himself appear to two women, not to priests, not to prophets, not to Peter, this rock on which I will build my church, but but these women, there's only one reasonable explanation for this. It's what actually happened. There is absolutely no benefit to Matthew making this up. None of this is normal, friends. And Matthew is plainly inviting his readers to check it out for themselves. And it is to this end. Matthew wants to make it altogether plain to his original readers and to us and to everyone else, that Jesus is risen. That's Matthew's point. And it is not only his point, but it is the central event of the entire Bible. And it is not an overstatement to say that it is the central event of all history. This is the gospel message. This is the good news that Christians proclaim. Jesus Christ, God's Son, born of a virgin, lived a sinless life, suffered, died, and was buried. And on the third day, he rose again from the dead. When he died, he paid the full price for the sin and rebellion and imperfections of all who would trust in him. And so through his perfections, those who believe in him now have full and complete access to God the Father forever. And when Jesus rose from the dead, he proved that his sacrifice was acceptable to God and that he had conquered sin and Satan and even death itself. The resurrection is unlike any other event in the history of the world It has never happened before or since, and that is very much on purpose. All of the Old Testament and all of history pointed forward to that event, and the past two thousand years have pointed back to that event. It is such a pivotal event that even the great church planting missionary. An author of much of the New Testament, Paul of Tarsus, wrote that if the resurrection did not happen, Christians are of all people most to be pitied. But it did happen. And Matthew, along with multiple others, have given us clear testimony. Jesus was most certainly dead. And Jesus... Is most certainly risen. Yet despite all this, some will continue to insist, no, he isn't. And Matthew addresses that objection head on. Let's look at verses 11 through 15 of Matthew 28. While they were going, that's the women, behold, some of the guard went into the city and told the chief priests all that had taken place. And when they had assembled with the elders and taken counsel, they gave a sufficient sum of money to the soldiers and said, tell people, his disciples came by night and stole him away while we were asleep. And if this comes to the governor's ears, we will satisfy him and keep you out of trouble. So they took the money and did as they were directed. And this story has been spread among the Jews to this day. Okay, here's the thing about Roman guards. They have one job, to guard stuff. And it was well understood among both the guards and those who employed the guards that if a guard failed to do that one thing, the penalties were horrific. In fact, I I wanted to share some examples of that, but after contemplating it a bit, I realized that, that because of the young ears in this room, who might have nightmares, not to mention some of the adults in this room who might have nightmares, I'm not going to do so. Look it up yourself if you're feeling so inclined and fond of nightmares. But let me assure you, being executed on the spot was among the more merciful options available to them. So what could possibly possess these Roman soldiers in verse 11 to go into the city and report to the chief priests that they had failed to do their one job? The answer is clear. Because back in verse 4, they saw something that terrified them even more than their potential punishment. Now, I'm not sure what that angel looked like, but it was enough to make the wrath of the Roman military look gentle by comparison. Now, thankfully for them, the priests and elders were just as flabbergasted as the soldiers, and so they didn't turn them over for punishment. However, what came about as a result is one of the most tragic lies that has ever been uttered. Would people really believe that the entire Roman guard at the tomb... On punishment of death, all fell asleep at the same time, didn't hear the giant stone being rolled away, and awoke to find that a group of fishermen and a tax collector had stolen the body that they were guarding. How, how would they even have known it was them that stole it if they were asleep? And if the guards had so blatantly failed to do their duty, how was it that they were even still alive to tell people this story? The wrath of the Roman military was not unknown to the people. They liked to watch crucifixions. And by the way, Mr. Former Soldier Guy, how are you paying the bills these days? Suddenly it seems like you came into some money, and yet you're not a Roman guard anymore. How does that work? What's he going to say? Uh, it's the uh, Roman Guard Outreach Ministry down at local synagogue. They're really handing out all the cash these days. Like, I, I, Worst lie ever. I, I don't know how else to put it. Like, But wh- why did they do this? Why lie? I guess it's the human condition, right? Wouldn't we all rather lie to ourselves and to others than to utter those most terrifying of words, I was wrong. I mean, we we all do this, right? We'd often rather go on living our lives like that thing didn't happen. Or maybe that that thing did happen. We implicitly and explicitly tell others lies to avoid having to deal with that. And trust me, I, I get that. I'm not being hard on on these guys or on anyone in this room who struggles in that way because when I was sitting there on top of the mountain with Andy, I fully recognized the weightiness of these very claims and I dismissed them. I said, it didn't happen. But Matthew's text here this morning cannot be so easily dismissed. Matthew, one of many Many eyewitnesses claims that the resurrection of Jesus Christ did happen, and neither the priests, nor soldiers, nor anyone else have any better explanation to offer. And so if you're here right now, and you have not previously lived as though Jesus was dead and is now alive, you have an absolutely critical choice to make today. Ignorance is not an option you you either choose to believe this testimony or you choose to say it didn't happen there is no third option you choose to say i was wrong or you choose to say matthew is wrong there is no third option You choose to say, I must be acceptable before God on my own, or you choose to say, I must be acceptable before God because of Jesus. There is no third option. Now, before you make that decision, one way or another, let's end our time together as Matthew ends his book. By examining what it is you're signing up for, should you choose to believe That Matthew has told the truth. There's no fine print or hidden conditions here. Matthew lays it all out for us. We've seen that Jesus was dead. We've seen that Jesus is risen. Some will say, no, he isn't. But now Jesus himself will respond. Yes, I am. Let's look at the last verses in Matthew 28. All that I've commanded you, and behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. It is fully appropriate that the risen Lord Jesus gets the final work, word, sorry, in Matthew's account. And here's what he says. All authority everywhere is mine. And now you have one job make disciples. Call others to follow me. Baptize them. That's a public change of allegiance. And teach them. They must know the truth. And you're not going to do this alone. I'm going to be there with you the whole time. That's what he says. And my friends, this is why the church exists. This is why we gather here on Sunday mornings and why people all across the world gather together on Sunday mornings. And it's why we meet together in one another's homes throughout the week to study God's Word and to talk about what He's doing in our lives. This is why countless thousands upon thousands upon thousands of men and women have given their lives so that others could hear this truth. Going to domestic and foreign peoples, translating and preaching the Bible, and sharing this life-changing testimony of the risen Lord Jesus Christ and the church does all this because seeing Jesus leads to worshiping Jesus. We saw that back with Mary and the other Mary when they saw him they fell down at his feet and they worshiped. And here in 17 verse 17 when the disciples saw him they worshiped. And friends, when we see him We worship Him. No, we didn't see Him physically with our eyes this morning. But we see clearly His character, His worth, His power, His authority. And so we worship Him. Now, that's not just singing. Worship certainly includes singing, but worship is much bigger than singing. It's loving, it's honoring, it's prioritizing. And and this is why he, with all that authority, has brought you personally here this morning. He wants you personally to see. He wants you personally to know the truth. He wants you personally to worship him. No, he doesn't need you to worship him. But when you and I worship Jesus Christ, and treasure him above all other things. We're doing what we were made to do. Human beings are little worship machines. All of us devote our lives to something. All of us give our allegiance to something, whether to a God or an idea or a person. The question is is what you're worshiping worthy of your worship? Is it Satisfying. Does it fulfill the promises it makes? Can it fulfill the promises it makes? Jesus Christ can. And he does. All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. And I am with you always to the very end of the age. Whatever else it is that you're worshiping, can it make those claims? Can it fulfill those promises? But perhaps you're thinking, okay, Tom, this all makes sense. I What I have been worshiping is not satisfying. And if Jesus really is risen, then I really do need to worship him. But perhaps you're also thinking, I just don't know. This is this is new. This is different. I, I, have, I have lots of doubts about this. If that's the case, you're in great company. Look at verse 17. When the disciples saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. These 11 guys, the guys who would soon be called apostles and elders and missionaries, Struggled with doubt, and you can't blame them. They knew that Jesus was dead. They watched him die, just like we saw in this text that he died. And now they saw that Jesus was risen, just like we see that Jesus has risen. And that changes everything. It's kind of hard to wrap your mind around something that changes everything. All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Like what? So. Bring your doubts to Jesus. Your doubts do not limit His authority. And bring your imperfections and your brokenness and your sin and rebellion and all the stuff that you wish weren't true of you, or perhaps that you wish were true of you, and give it all to Jesus. He can handle it. He died for that in the first place. And now, He is risen. Triumphant over your sin and over death itself. So now you see. Now you have all the evidence. You know the truth. You know the implications. Will you worship the risen Christ?